Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and uh, open them to Romans chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7, we'll get a running start into our main text, which will be from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Romans chapter 7, we'll, we'll read in just a moment, beginning in, in verse 20. So I've been on a, a little bit of a mini vacation at the end of this week, and apparently uh, Bruce Jenner has made the news again. Uh, I would be lying if I said I've kept up with this story, um, but I, I know a bit, bits and pieces of uh, the story of the former Olympian who this week at the annual ESPN Awards ceremony, the SP Awards, received the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, this award named after the famous tennis star who, during a blood transfusion, contracted HIV-AIDS and later died. Uh, ESPN names an annual award for an athlete who has shown great courage in a certain field. Well, Jenner, being a former Olympian, and if you've tracked with, if you've actually turned on a TV in the last six months, you've seen this story, right? Who uh, professes to now be a woman, undergone extensive uh, surgery and transformation to now reappear to make public headlines as Caitlyn Jenner, now uh, a woman. Uh, the uh, Dateline stories, 2020 stories over the last month have detailed Bruce's story, his personal testimony to feeling trapped in the skin that he was in, feeling like from a very early age he was a woman, and now being able to publicly come out and uh, testify that, that he is. Many, many uh, protested the ESPN award, saying that Bruce's transformation really demonstrates very little of the courage that someone like Arthur Ashe testified to during his life. But the Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner story actually exposes us to a reality that we are, while it may conjure up these images or make us cringe a bit to see Caitlyn Jenner on the stage in a white dress receiving a Courage Award, we are way more like Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, than we care to admit. And here's what I mean by that. Given enough time, all of us are a bit uncomfortable in the skin that we're in. Most of you have lived long enough to have had a ton of experiences where you reflect back on either what you did that day or what you've done over the last month and said, man, I sure wish I was different than I am. I mean, it could be little piddly things, like I wish I was more motivated to actually uh, fulfill the tasks that are before me. Or I wish I didn't struggle with these certain sins of anger or lust. I wish that the skin I was in, that something would change. We grow frustrated with ourselves and wish things were different, and that's what makes this text from Paul in Romans chapter 7 probably the easiest passage to memorize of any passage in all of Scripture. Not because it's actually sticky, but because we've all said this, if we're honest. We probably said it this week. Read with me in uh, Romans uh, chapter 7, beginning verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight to do the law of God in my inner, me, inner being. But I see in my members another law 
raging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul expresses a struggle that any of us who've lived any length of time trying to obey God on this earth can attest to. I don't understand why I do what I, what I do. I want to do what is right. I want to please God, but I feel like there's something else waging war inside of me. I wish I could get out of this skin that I'm trapped in. This desire cuts across all people, regardless of status or background. We are much like Bruce Jenner. We're not comfortable in our own skin. And it's fascinating to consider that everyone is looking for this type of escape. This is one thing that we can all high-five one another in the room, that given enough time, we all get frustrated with ourselves. So the problem is that a new body is not going to fix this. This is the reality that we can look at with pity as we consider the Bruce Jenner story. A transformation to become Caitlyn Jenner Jenner isn't going to make anyone more comfortable in the skin that they're in. This past week, I had to make a terrible confession to my family. We were camping at Oconee State Park, and on a Friday night at the campground, they had square dance lessons. My wife, who enjoys dancing, decided that we should all go and participate in this frolicking good time. Interspersed between the square dance lessons, there was a team of cloggers, professional cloggers, who put on a demonstration unlike I had ever seen before. And as we looked on at this wonderful demonstration, if you're a clogger, praise God, I'm for you, all right? Um, (laughs) But as as we looked on at these cloggers, I had to confess to Corey that at one time in late middle school, uh, I, too, took clogging lessons. (laughs) I hang my head in shame to this day. Uh, My Umbro soccer shorts and clogging shoes graced the stage of Castle Heights Middle School in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Here's the problem, as you could probably testify by looking at me, is uh, I am not a clogger. (laughs) I have absolutely zero rhythm. Uh, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how anyone could play a drum set and do different things with their hands and their feet at the same time. It makes absolutely no sense to me. So while my parents decided it was a great idea, after I failed at trumpet lessons to put me in clogging class, You would have to take out my soul, put it in a different body with rhythm, and call that thing Matt for Matt to ever be a clogger. There is no way this body is ever going to clog, okay? You would have to, if you wanted me to be that, you would have to take me out, put me in someone else, and let me live vicariously through that person. This is the frustration that we often have with ourselves in so many areas, Perhaps silly to consider clogging or drumming or whatever the case may be, but in just simple pursuit of righteousness, the same frustration is there. I want to do these things, but my body just doesn't agree. 
When I'm here, perhaps on Sunday morning singing these songs, it seems like holiness is the natural thing that should come out, but Monday morning, that's not what comes out. So what do we do? This is why this passage in Ephesians 2 is one of the most hopeful texts in all of the scriptures. We read in Ephesians 2, turn there with me, in Ephesians 2, verse 6. Ephesians 2, verse 6. In fact, let's get a running start with with all of this text that we've been considering through the summer. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that verse 10 sounds really nice, right? Good works that we should walk in. God's prepared before that we're going to do. This is the desire that we have, that we would do the things that God has appointed us to do. But how do we accomplish that goal, particularly in light of the first three verses of this passage that introduce to us the problem that we all feel in the members of our flesh, that we have inherited something that is diabolical, that wars against our desire to do what God has created us to do. We have inherited sin. As we saw earlier throughout this summer, we are, the reason we don't like the skin that we are in is we are actually in Adam. Consider Paul's writing in Romans 5, 12 through 14. These verses should be on the screen behind me. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Now I want you to hold that idea with me for a minute, the idea that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. At the first, Paul introduces the reality that we sin because we are in Adam. Adam serves, as we saw in the month of June, Adam serves as our sin representative. Now, we may push against this negative representation that Adam would represent us in sin and disobeying God, but we all like the notion of representation. In fact, this is what makes Shark Week work. Any of you captivated by Shark Week over the past couple? Yeah, like every time my kids ate it up, right? The, the thing that makes Shark Week work, I'm not jumping in that tank, right? That's stupid. I'm not letting dude lower me out of a crane so I can tack a tag on a shark's tail. Not doing that. But I can vicariously live through the dummies that are doing that, sitting in my lazy boy drinking a sweet tea, right? This is what makes it work. I get to experience, I get to participate there as if I were there. I get to live through somebody else. This, give me, give me a month and we're going to see this like crazy, right? You guys all act like sane people, but in about a month, college football is going to kick off. 
And when college football kicks off in the Southeast, people go dumb. They say things like, we won yesterday. No, you didn't. You sat in your lazy boy, right? And if you had lost, you would have been blaming the dummies on the field that actually lost the game. We love to live vicariously through other people and feel like their accomplishment is our accomplishment. The Bible presents this same notion of representation negatively in Adam. He serves as our sinful representation. And conversely, we see in this text in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that we also, those of us who are in Christ, have a positive representation. Two claims in this text, in Ephesians 2, verse 6. We're just going to consider this one singular phrase, that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at the two claims that Paul makes in this text. That those of us who are the recipients of God's grace have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And then a tag that answers the question, how does this happen in Christ Jesus? So the big phrases are the big words in this text, the hinge words. You are with him, you are seated with him, and you are in Christ Jesus, with, with, in, in. These are the critical phrases of this passage that tell us a hopeful truth for those of us that are in Christ Jesus and don't like the skin that we're in. Paul picks up this same idea in Romans 5, following saying that we're sinfully represented by Adam. He ends that passage that we read a moment ago saying that he's a type of the one who is to come, pointing to Christ. He points to Christ and says in Romans 5, beginning in verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the reality that Paul's establishing here is you can't get away from the notion of representation. You, every single one of us, are represented by someone. Either Adam, by virtue of our birth, or Christ by virtue of our rebirth. This gift of grace being in Christ Jesus is very good news for those of us who don't like the skin that we're in. We see that while Adam represented us in the garden, someone much greater represented us and claimed us, as Rodney read a moment ago, as his own. This contrast is seen most vividly, perhaps, in the temptation story. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I want you to consider the way this contrast plays out. A sinful representative representing you in the garden, and then a sinless representative representing those of us who are in Christ through his righteous and perfect life. You may be familiar with the story in Genesis 3 where Adam is tempted to rebel from God, Eve there as well, 
eating the fruit, disobeying God's command. I want you to let that story play in the background of your minds as we consider this passage from Matthew 4. Right on the front end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we read these words. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Quite a contrast to the story that we read in Genesis 3, isn't it? But it's not exactly a parallel contrast. Notice the stark difference in these two stories. Adam is tempted in a garden. Jesus is tempted where? In the wilderness. Adam is tempted in the face of ample provision. Eat from any tree in this garden but that one. Jesus is tempted in the face of staggering need. Forty days, forty nights without food. Adam is tempted by a serpent. Jesus is tempted by Satan himself. Adam's temptation, ask him to avoid the negative. If you do this, you won't surely die. Jesus here gets great promises. You will get these things. You'll get bread. You'll get a kingdom, rule, and reign. Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden comes in one silly little form. Jesus confronts Satan in three different forms. Adam responds with man's wisdom. Jesus here in the text responds with God's wisdom, quoting the scriptures. As we consider the temptation of these two representative figureheads, we see that in the garden, all of us would fail, and in the wilderness, none of us would succeed. All of us would fail in the garden, and none of us would succeed in the wilderness. And as a result, the grace that allows us to be represented by Jesus is startling. We are represented by Adam. How? Simply by our birth. And this is why we can, at the outset, recognize that all people are going to be restless in the skin that they're in. This is why we must resist the temptation, church, to get jarred and rattled by these headline clickbait stories online. While it may seem like these are 
drastically different situations than that that you and I encounter. These are the same realities that all of us face in our lives and in those that we love. We all want to escape the skin that we're in because given enough time, we just simply don't like it. Now, on its basic form, you're going to encounter these escapes very simple ways. Consider the escape of materialism. If I just get enough stuff, it will give me that shot of energy to be a different person. Or success. If I'm successful enough, then I can communicate a different version of me to the watching world. This is why it's so disheartening for many of us when you interact with really successful people and you get up close to them, and you're like, dude, that dude's just as messed up as I am. He just looks real, way more polished in his business clothes. He's got the same issues that I do. Or self-help. If I simply pursue personal transformation, then I'll feel differently about myself. The problem is you end up just with a skinnier version of you. Right? And that may feel good for a few weeks or a few months or a year, but the reality is you're still trapped in the same skin with the same frustration. Some escape through romance novels. If I can live vicariously through this character, or some escape through addiction. I'll just numb the pain to get out of the skin I'm in. Now, on a macro level, this plays out in a more nuanced philosophical form. Consider concepts like nirvana. Not, not the naked baby in the swimming pool nirvana, all right? Uh, the other nirvana. You guys didn't think I was that hip, right? I remember, I had the CD, I got the little cover. Some of you are like, what's he talking Ask somebody under 40 in the room, or maybe, I don't know, under 50? I, I, yeah, I know, I see some hands raised, all right? It's like, I don't know, I'm dating myself. All right, so the idea here is that we can create a reality where we can escape, right? It's the notion that if I simply focus meditate, control my inner war, then I can escape out of the reality that I'm in and not feel it for a minute. Philosophical terms like existentialism became the defining words for the culture post the Enlightenment, as people attempted to define their reality to say, the only thing that I know that's true is that I exist. And the rest of the world is one big pool of nothingness. That's why if you actually read much philosophy, I'm reading Camus' The Stranger this week, and people read that book and are wowed by the depth and brilliance. I'm like, that dude didn't say anything, right? He didn't say anything. And that's the point. The point is that life is full of nothingness. Nothing has meaning, nothing has significance. At a street level, we get this in Woody Allen movies and in Seinfeld sitcoms, right? There's shows about nothing. And this was the reality that people espouse. There's nothing outside of me that I can base my hope on. So I'm just simply going to try to escape, or many of you sitting in the pews this morning may even look at things like Christianity this way, 
that religion can become a form of escape. So when I don't like the skin that I'm in, I'm just going to try to be the person that I'm not. This is why the same teenager rededicates their life at summer camp every year from 11 to 22, right? Because they feel bad and they muster up the energy to try better at summer camp to be the person that they know they should be but they can't actually be. Is this the hope that we have in Christianity? Is this the hope that Christianity empowers? I sure hope not. And in fact, I don't have to hope not. We read in the scriptures that this is not the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is that we, by virtue of being in Christ, as we see in Ephesians 2, have a current reality. We are raised. By virtue of being in Christ, living vicariously through him, his work being credited to our account, Satan, sin, and death are currently defeated. This is a current reality for us. Notice the passage that's going to follow, what we'll preach next week. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his cra- of grace to us in Christ Jesus. So there's something coming in the future, but these two clauses are current realities. You are right now raised with Christ Jesus. You are right now, if you are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. The author of Hebrews is going to use this this terminology to describe the Old Testament priest who would constantly have to attend to the offerings, never being able to sit down. The author of Hebrews says that when Christ finished his once and for all permanent sacrifice, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father saying the work is done. The price for sin has permanently been paid. And Paul tells us that if you are in Christ, because you live through him, you're seated in the heavenly places. The heat is off. Your sin, past, present, and future, has already been accounted for. You are raised and seated. This is why, friends, Jesus is a really big deal for the church. Now, you laugh at that and you're like, man, that's dumb. Um, I, I'm right now uh, in the process of teaching some of my first uh, college theology classes uh, and reading essays where students are asked to describe why Jesus matters in the Bible. You would think there could not be more of a softball question, right? Why is Jesus important? And friends, I will tell you, nine times out of ten in these essays, this is what I get. Jesus is important because he sets a model for us of how to be a good person. And if I try hard enough, I can be like him. Friends, that is not Christianity. Let me protect you from making a bonehead move in a college theology essay. That is religious moralism. That is not the gospel. The gospel message is that Jesus is our representative substitute long before he is our example. He is our representative substitute in dying the death that we deserve, our representative substitute in living the life that we cannot live. He substitutes for us, and by faith, by rebirth, according to Jesus, you can be in 
Christ. So all that he accomplished is credited to you. So, so why does this matter? What are the implications of this? I'll give you three. One, death. Consider death for a moment. We sing this in a song consistently around here. Because of Jesus, no guilt in life. What's the next line? No fear in death. Jesus commands my destiny. If you are in Christ this morning, friends, there is nothing to fear in death. In fact, the greatest fears have long since passed. Jesus has gone through death for you. In death, your body catches up with the reality that is right now, that you are currently, right now, raised and seated with Christ Jesus. And praise God, that's going to be a great day when my body catches up with my soul and I don't feel the weight of this tension at war every single stinking day. But the reality, the already not yet, comes full force. Consider the implications for worry. I mean, this is the tension, right? We're embodied souls with an otherworldly dwelling place. And this causes all kinds of worry to play out in our lives. What would happen, friends, this morning, if all of your worst fears on this earth were to come true this morning? All your worst fears. For those of you that are in Christ, while that may make you shudder, the reality is, can never take away the fact that your sin is permanently paid for. You are raised with Christ. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. All the worst that this earth can throw at you is mere child's play compared to that reality that's already been handled. So friends, we can have hope. The worst that this world can throw at us can't jar the reality that Christ has already accomplished for us. And then lastly, what are the implications for sin? This is my, my hope. If my hope is based on the fact that Jesus sets an example, and if I just try harder, I'll be like him, I'm toast this week. But if Christianity, if the hinge of Christianity, you know, bullet down to two words for me, it's this, in Christ. If the reality is I'm in Christ, then it protects me from two ditches. I don't have to mask my sin, and I don't have to wallow in shame about my sin. I don't have to hide it, and I don't have to beat myself in, up in condemnation over it. I am free from shame, guilt, and despair, right? No guilt in life, no fear in death. Jesus commands my destiny. What do I do when I don't like the skin that I am in? I am thankful, praise Jesus, that I live through him. I am represented by someone else. And this, friends, is, it's all between, it's right here. This is a reality that we have to, Christians, we have to beat into our heads every day. When you limp under the weight of not liking the skin that you're in, consistently telling yourself, but I'm in Christ. My sin is paid for. My eternal destiny is secure. No need to escape to anyone other than Jesus. 
No need to escape anywhere else. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, this sermon is really, really bad news for you. Because the reality is, in, let's say, an 80-year-old life, if God is gracious to you, you're, you're going to be able to ping-pong between different forms of escape for the rest of your life. So you'll escape through materialism for a while, it'll be a dead end. You'll escape through self-help for a while, it'll be a dead end. You might escape through philosophy for a while, it'll be a dead end. You'll escape through religion for a while. And in most 80-year lives, you can ping-pong between different forms of escape till the day you die recognizing that every other way but Christ is a dead end. So would you accept the testimony of God's word this morning and turn to Christ before it's too late? You are believing a lie about your good news message, and the only good news is found in being in Christ. This morning it's as simple as recognizing that you are in Adam, hopelessly under the weight of your sin, testifying, praising your faith in Christ's finished work, and saying, I want to, rather than being represented by Adam, be represented by Christ. As we finish this morning, you can do that. Seated where you are, you can come talk to a pastor who will be in the back or down front. If you're here and this is a reality for you, friends, whatever you came in limping under the weight of, would you sing as if you are raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Would you pray and lay off the things that burden your minds and the worries that distract you and the people that you're frustrated with and recognize the reality that all those things are little compared to the glorious reality that you are in Christ? Would you come out of hiding from the sin that you wallow in and recognize that you are represented by someone else, someone else's skin you get to live in. And it's not just any someone. It's the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Let's bow to him as, in prayer as we close. God, we count it an immeasurable privilege to be in Christ. We deserve the punishment that is due us by virtue of being in Adam. He represented us and we follow in his footsteps. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. You did that by placing us in Christ. He dies the death we deserve and lives the life we could never live, and that gives us great hope. Forgive us for downcast souls in light of the glorious reality that is we are raised and seated in the heavenly places right now. God, would that reality enliven our hearts with worship today. Cause us to stand in awe of what you have done and propel our worship. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.